0: Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would, please take out your Bibles, take out the Word of God, and turn in it in the New Testament to Second Peter chapter number 2, 2 Peter chapter number two. Now, I want to begin by asking you a question, and you can hold your hands up high. How many of you have ever had to travel through airport security? Let me see the hands up there. Yeah, the majority of us have. And you know what that is like? You end up being nearly undressed when you go through airport security. You got to lose your shoes, your belt, your jacket, your jewelry. You have to empty out all of your pockets. You have to get your computer out your tablet out, your phone out, your purse, your carry-ons, all of that has to be organized. And if you have a toddler and a stroller, multiply that times three, right? And what makes it even worse is you're all in a rush to do it because the people behind you are pushing and they're anxious to get through security. And if I could think of one word that would describe how you feel As you've come through airport security, that one word would be the word discombobulated, right? We feel discombobulated when we go through airport security. Now, what is interesting about that is some airports are learning about how we feel discombobulated, and some of them are picking up on it. For example, in the General Mitchell Airport in Milwaukee, they now have an area with a special sign that says... Recombobulation area. You know, you want to be in the recombobulation area so you can combobulate your way out of the state of disarray that you're in when you go through airport security, right? Now, we've been involved in a series of messages from 2 Peter chapter 2 that we've entitled Be Aware, and if you take chapter 2 of 2 Peter and you read just straight through the 22 verses you're going to be reading about all the confrontations, the descriptions of the false teachers, the rebukes that are there, the severe consequences that are there. I think when you read all the way through those verses, you tend to feel a little bit discombobulated. And and actually, chapter 2 of 2 Peter is very difficult to outline. I have struggled in trying to find a good, clear way to outline that chapter. But one thing is clear in chapter 2, Peter is not into political correctness. You have to even wonder if there was someone who watching him write the letter, or maybe they read it after he had had written it out, and they would say, whoa, tone it down, Pete, just a little bit. Now, that's pretty heavy stuff. But what Peter does in chapter 2 is he tells it like it is, and he unleashes heavy artillery on the false teachers. Now, here's a question. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Why does he unleash heavy artillery on the false teachers? Well, the reasons are they were distorting gospel truth. They were misleading people who were followers of Jesus and leading them into positions of those people being discouraged, defeated, some of them no doubt experiencing despair in their life. He is doing it because, as he says in verse Two of the chapter, because of them the way of truth is maligned. That means it's discredited. It is defamed. And then in verse 3 of chapter 2, he says of these false teachers, they exploit you with false words. And then as we saw last time, he said of them, they seek, their motivations are, to teach you motivated by sensuality and sex motivated by money and affluence, motivated by the pride of power, influence, and popularity. Now, I've given a title to today's message as we conclude chapter 2, and the title is A Final Autopsy, and we see that in verses 17 to 22, and I would like to read verses 17 to 22 and invite you to follow along in your Bible as I'm reading so, in this final autopsy, Paul, or rather Peter, says this. He says, These are springs without water, talking about the false teachers, mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom. While they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Verse 20 For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Now, before we move into this, I just want to remind you of what we have covered in chapter 2. We first looked, in the first three verses, at the reality of the danger of false teachers. Last time, in verses 3 to 16, we looked at the inevitability of judgment on false teachers. And today, as a conclusion of the chapter, we're going to look at Peter's autopsy on the effects of of false teachers in verses 17 to 22. Now, when I say autopsy, what's an autopsy? An autopsy is a clarifying analysis. It's a clarifying evaluation. So we have basically today a two-part plan. First of all, we're going to look at a concluding assessment that he makes of the false teachers in verses 17 to 19. And then secondly, we're going to look at what I'm calling a confusing epilogue in verses 20 to 22. So that is where we are going. That's what we're going to cover. We're going to begin by looking at a concluding assessment that he gives in verses 17, 18, and 19. So let's look again at verse 17. Notice he says, These, he's been talking about the false teachers, are springs without water. Now, if you lived in the Middle East, you would know... That water is very, very vital. And so when anyone in the Middle East hears a teaching about water, their ears would perk up. And he says, these false teachers are springs without water. That is a picture of deception. See, if you would approach a spring, you would be anticipating that the spring would have water that would refresh you. The New Living Translation translates it, they are as useless as dried-up springs. What was happening is that the false teachers were promising spiritual refreshment. They were promising spiritual vitality, and they can't deliver on that because they don't have it. He goes on to say in verse 17, they are mist driven by a storm. What would often happen in that part of the world is that there'd be this heavy sea breeze that would come up and it would pick up a little bit of mist from the sea. And so if you're on the land, you might see these clouds coming and this mist flowing and you think there's rain that's going to come. It's signaling rain to follow, but ultimately there is nothing there at all. In other words, in these two analogies he's using, the false teachers promise what they cannot deliver. And then notice he says in verse 17 regarding them, he says, For whom the black darkness has been reserved. The ESV says, The gloom of darkness has been reserved. Now, in many ways, the book of Jude, the little book just before the book of the Revelation, parallels some of these thoughts that Peter has. And I want you to see the way Jude puts it in Jude 12 and 13. Speaking of the false teachers again, And you'll hear echoes of what we've been looking at in 2 Peter 2. They are shameless in the way that they care only about themselves. They are like clouds blowing over dry land without giving rain, promising much but producing nothing. They are like trees without fruit at harvest time. They are wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved for ever now men and women that is a stark summary of these false teachers now going back second peter look at verse 18 it says they speak out arrogant words of vanity literally the word in the original is swollen words you know something that's swollen is just not what it ought to be The Net Bible translates it, they speak high-sounding but empty words. In other words, their teaching sounds appealing. But there is a big difference between true biblical communication and manipulation. And manipulation is what the false teachers do. Notice in verse 18, he says there, they entice by fleshly desires. The emphasis is the pursuit of personal pleasures and desires. And that's what they're communicating to their listeners to pursue personal pleasures and desires. You might put it this way. They like to paint fleshly desires in appealing colors. That's what false people, teachers do. They paint fleshly desires in appealing colors. You see that in the arena of those who teach the wealth and prosperity teaching. They're painting fleshly desires in appealing colors. This is what you ought to want. This is what God wants for you. And notice it goes on to say in verse 18, they also speak out these empty words by sensuality. Part of the appealing colors is appealing to sensuality. And you see that a lot today in the false teaching that is out there that seeks to justify homosexual behavior, that seeks to justify people who are not married cohabiting together. You see the same thing, these appealing colors in the push in the arena of transgenderism, you know, where they're telling young people, you get to pick your own gender. By the way, these false teachers, Peter is going to tell us, have a special target. Notice he says that they speak out these words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. Who's the target? Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. The NIV says those who are just escaping. Most commentators believe that he is referring to newer believers younger believers as being a special target of the false teachers. That's what most commentators feel. Now, what would you say about newer believers and younger believers? Well, they're the most vulnerable targets. They are less equipped to analyze the false teaching that is coming their way. They're less equipped because just of lack of experience spiritually to analyze the tactics and propaganda of the false teachers. Men and women, that is why it is so vital for our children to learn the Scriptures well. It's why it's so vital for our students to learn the Scriptures well. It is why it is so vital for new believers to learn the Scriptures well, because that is the greatest protection from the scourge of false teaching that we can have. Now notice in verse 19, it says something more about the false teachers. It says they're promising them freedom. Again, this is part of the allure of this push of transgenderism that is coming on our day, which wants to say, especially to our young people, be who you think you are rather than who God says you are, promising them freedom. And yet there's some irony there in verse 19. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. The NIV says they are slaves of depravity. Verse 19, for by what a man is overcome by this, by this, He is enslaved. New Living Translation says, you are a slave to whatever controls you. I just want you to see that these false teachers, they like to cry, freedom, 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 while they themselves are slaves to sin. So that is the concluding assessment we see in verses 17 and 19. And we said, though, we had a two-part plan for today. The second thing we were going to do, after having looked at a concluding assessment, is to look at what I'm calling a confusing epilogue. Now, I want to read verses 20 and 21 again, and just follow along. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world... By the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Now, here's the question I want to ask for a moment, and that is, this is probably what you're wondering, well, why is this confusing? Why is this confusing? And I'm going to answer that question, and the reason why it's confusing is what happens when you're reading through these verses is it's easy to do what I often call being lost in the pronouns. You ever do that when someone's talking to you and they're using he or she and there's multiple people involved or them, and, and you go, wait a minute, I, I, got, I got lost in the pronouns. Who are we talking about there? Well, it's easy to get lost in the pronouns, which are at times subjects of the verbs in the original language. So I want to point out, here's the idea. In verse 20, you notice it says there are two they's there. It says, if after they have escaped, they are again entangled. Those two they's could refer to the false teachers... Or those two days could refer to the targets of the false teachers, the newer, younger believers. Notice in verse 19, we have two days. in verse 20. Well, those two days could track back in verse 19 to the phrase themselves being slaves of corruption. Or the two they's in verse 20 could track back to they are enslaved and they are slaves of corruption. So we we don't really know how exactly it tracks back. So I want to just let you know that there are, are two basic views that expositors have of this little epilogue. And one I'm calling the majority view. Now, why do I call it the majority view? The reason why I call it the majority view is that the majority of Bible expositors would hold to this view. There are more who hold to this view than hold to the other view. And what the majority view says is this, that this epilogue that we have here, verses 20, 21, and also 22, is addressing false teachers who only claimed to know God people who are mere professors of the faith they are people who were never regenerated they're just people who are sort of outwardly following Christ so that is the majority view the minority view which just simply means there are less there are many good exposers but less of them who would say this, that the epilogue is addressing vulnerable believers, newer or younger converts, who were deceivingly led into sin. So hang in there with me because I want you to understand this. It's sort of important. I want to explain the way both views look at these verses, okay? So first, let's look at the majority view, which is saying that these verses are addressing the false teachers who only claim to know God, who were mere professors of faith. And what they would say is that the two they's in verse 20, if you look up to verse 19, track back better to the word them rather than the word themselves you know, promising them freedom while they themselves are slave. In other words, I actually got that backwards. It's closer, the two days from verse 20, to the word themselves in verse 19 than the word them, which occurs right before it. Now, here's the way they would understand these phrases. In the majority view, who think it's addressing false teachers who only claim to know God, sort of pretenders of the faith, you have the phrase that are described as escaping the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what they would say is when it says they escaped, oh, it only means in sort of a sense that they escaped. They didn't really escape, just sort of in a sense they escaped because they were pretending to follow Jesus. And because they were pretending to follow Jesus, they lived differently for a while, sort of masquerading as a follower of Christ. And so they escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, here's what they would say in the majority view, these false teachers had heard the gospel, they had fully understood the gospel of salvation, but they had never trusted in it at all. They only had head knowledge, simply head knowledge. Majority view, he says, they are entangled, they have been overcome, and the last state is worse than the first. Uh, Being entangled, the majority of you would say, is that they got caught up again and entangled in their sin choices. They have been overcome. They now have returned to their previous lifestyle. And the last state is worse than the first. How does the majority of you understand that little phrase there? Well, at first, these false teachers were unaware of who Christ is. But then they heard about who Christ is and what he had done, and now they are rejecting Jesus, likely never to reconsider Jesus ever again. So therefore, the last state is worse than the first. And then you have the phrase in verse 21, "Is better for them not to have known the way of Righteousness. What does the way of righteousness mean in the majority view? Well, they would say that the way of righteousness is the pathway of salvation. It would have been better for them not to have known the, the pathway of salvation because now they are rejecting it. And then in verse 21, it goes on to say, It's better than having known it to turn from the holy commandment. What is, in the majority view, the Holy Commandment referring to? Well, they would say, in the majority view, that that's referring to the gospel, the gospel message, or maybe it's referring to all of the scriptures. And the majority of you would say, this is just that scriptural principle that the more light you have, the more responsibility you have. In other words, when they didn't know about Jesus, it was one thing. But when they heard and understood, and ultimately they end up rejecting him, there's greater responsibility for them than those who have never heard. Greater responsibility in the future judgment. You know, future judgment of humanity is going to be tiered by God. And what that would be saying is they would say that if you learned about Jesus and you rejected Jesus, there's greater responsibility than someone who never heard about Jesus. So that's the majority view of these verses. Are you hanging in there with me? All right. Let's look at the minority view. Remember, the minority view would say this epilogue is addressing the vulnerable believers, the newer or younger converts, who were deceivingly led into sin. And what they say is that the they's, in verse 20, track better back to the word promising them freedom in verse 19. Now, how does the minority view understand these various phrases that follow? Well, they escaped the elements of the world by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're saying, in the minority view, these were real believers. And they would point us to chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, where you have language that is strongly similar, almost totally identical to what is occurring in these verses in chapter 2. Let's go over to chapter 1 for a moment and look at verses 1 to 4 because, you know, when Peter opened up his letter, he was writing to these believers and he was acknowledging the salvation of the recipients of the letter. And I want you to notice there's similar phraseology here to what we see in the epilogue. Notice verse 1. He's writing, he says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. And here we go, similar wording, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And here's similar wording, in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 4. He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Oh, here comes, interesting wording, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now that verbal structure there that says you escaped is the exact same verbal structure as the escaping that's mentioned in the epilogue. Exactly the same wording. It seems that the language that we see in the epilogue, to me, or to the minority view, would be the language of genuine conversion. It's not making a reference, the minority view would say, to someone who's a mere professor of the faith, but it is a description of a true possessor of the faith. Now go, go back with me. In chapter 2 to verse 20 again, and we want to to look at how the minority view looks at these various phrases. Remember, it talks about they are entangled, they are overcome, and how the last state is worse than the first. They become entangled again in the defilements of the world, and they've been overcome. The minority view would say they're spiritually defeated. Uh, They're caught up in some sin in their life. Uh, after having had spiritual victory at the beginning and then you have the phrase that the last state i guess maybe i have to go back one here oh the last state is worse than the first what does that really mean well the minority view would say that when you're a brand new believer you don't really know better right But as you come to faith in Christ, you begin to learn to know better. And yet these newer believers or younger believers had allowed themselves to be influenced by the false teachers and were making poor choices. Minority view. It is better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Now here's what the minority view would say. The way of righteousness. It does not say it is better for them to have not known Christ. He doesn't say it is better for them not to have known the gospel. I mean, you would never say that it's better for anyone to not know the way of salvation because to not know the way of salvation leads to hell. Now, this little phrase, the way of righteousness, remember the majority of you says that's referring to the gospel message, per se. The minority view says, no, the way of righteousness is a reference, really, to the Christian life. The New Living Translation says, it would be better for them not to have known the right way to live. The minority view says, this is a Christian life issue. It would have been better for these young or newer believers, not to have known the way of righteousness, that little phrase that is there. Um, Very, very important phrase, the way of righteousness. Now, again, that's referring to the Christian life in the minority view. Then it would have been better for them to have not known it than having known it to turn from the Holy Commandment. Now, that little phrase becomes really important again because the majority view says the Holy Commandment is a reference to the gospel or a reference to all of the scriptures. The minority view says, no, it's not. The minority view says the Holy Commandment in Peter's world referred to what Peter says in his first letter, In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, when he's writing to believers there, and he says, like the Holy One who called you, you followers of Christ, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So in the minority view, the Holy Commandment is referring back to this, the exhortation to live a holy life. And so the idea in this view would be that these newer believers or younger believers had walked with Jesus for a while. They had learned that they were to honor him with their life, but they were now making carnal choices. And to do that, to do that would bring certain guilt and conviction to a believer in Christ. It would bring inner anguish. It would bring ultimately spiritual discipline from the Lord. It's harder to enjoy Sin after your heart's been changed. It just is. So there there you have the majority view and the minority view. So here's the question. Some of you are wondering, which one do you prefer, Bruce? And I want you to know that, that I personally lean more towards the minority view. And I lean towards that not because there aren't many great expositors who hold the majority view, but the reason why are really two reasons. The first reason is that the language of verse 20, which we saw, which parallels the language of chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, points strongly to these people being true believers. Not pretend believers, but true believers. And then the second reason why I lean more towards the minority view is what it says at the end of 2 Peter in chapter 3, verses 17 to 18, which we will eventually get to. But here's the idea. In what Peter's writing is, he's saying, in light of the danger of false teachers, in, in light of their attempt to draw you into sinful activity, here is the way that he exhorts them at the end of the letter. And you'll see a lot of parallel with what we see in chapter 2. He says to those believers, be on your guard. Why? So that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your steadfastness. Not fall from your salvation, not lose your salvation, but fall from the steadfastness of your walk with Christ. Rather, what I want you to do is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's a big part of the thrust of what he is writing, and that points me back to the minority view. Now, there's a second question. The first one was, which do you prefer, Bruce? second question is how does verse 22 relate to the majority and minority views? We want to talk about that for a moment. How does verse 22 fit into all of this? So look at verse 22. Notice it says there, it has happened to them, you've got to answer who the them are, according to the true proverb. You'll notice there, it's not proverbs, it's proverb even though there are two of them mentioned, a dog returning to its own vomit and the sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So why is there only one proverb? Well, they both illustrate the same principle. Now remember, the them, who are the them in the majority view? Who are the them in the majority view? The false teachers who only claim to know God. Now, In the majority view, they would say regarding verse 22 is it emphasizes nature. It emphasizes nature. You know, pigs to the Jews were unclean, as were dogs to the Jews. And here's what they would say verse 22 is emphasizing You're you're gonna eventually find out the natures of these false professing people. You can pretend to know Jesus. But eventually, your true nature will show itself. It will show itself. Now, the them in the minority view. Remember, the them in the minority view is it's addressing vulnerable believers, newer or younger converts. And the minority view would say that verse 22 is not emphasizing nature. The true nature will come out. It's emphasizing instead behavior behavior. In other words, for a child of the king, this is what the minority of you would say, to allow yourself to engage in sin is as disgusting to God as a dog who regurgitates and then eats it. You know, think about that the next time we make a sinful choice. It's as disgusting to God as that or as disgusting to God as a pig who is washed and then just chooses to go back and get and wallow in the mud. So the emphasis on this verse in the minority view is it's emphasizing behavior. So there you have it. Two different ways of viewing verses 20, 21, and 22. Now, I want to talk about some life response And I want to talk about some life response, really, for the entire series of three messages that we have done. So the first life response I want to talk about is for those who do not know Jesus as their rescuer. You know, we have been pointing out, and Peter's been pointing out, that false teachers are springs without water. But the person of Jesus Christ is a true source of spiritual refreshment. And if you don't know him, I just want you to understand that because we can be on a search for that and miss that the solution to that search is found in Christ. This is what Jesus said. He said, whoever drinks of the water that I give him, notice the imagery here, shall never thirst. But the water I will give him or her will become in him or her a well of water springing up to eternal life. If you don't know Jesus as your rescuer, I want you to know this is where refreshment that you long for can be found. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. A lot of times we're searching for other things. We don't even know what we're searching for. Augustine said these things. He says this to the Lord. He says, because you made us for yourself, you were made when you were born to have a relationship with God. Because you made us for yourself, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. What a great truth that is. And we want to encourage you to do that very thing if you've never trusted in Christ. Find your rest in Him. And I just want to remind you, following Jesus, becoming a Christian, is not walking an aisle, it's not praying a prayer, it's not being baptized, it's not joining a church. It's a personal life choice that someone makes to trust in to count fully on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what believing means. And if you've never done that, do it right now. You don't have to do anything special. It's a heart choice that we make to put our hope and trust in what Christ has done for us. I appeal to you to do that if you've never done it. Secondly, We want to talk about some life response for those who do know Jesus as their rescuer. And we've mentioned this one already. If you know Jesus as your rescuer, be a Berean. The Bereans would search the Scriptures carefully to see whether these things are so. And all of us ought to be Bereans. Secondly, if you do know Jesus Christ as your rescuer, by way of some life response, live what you believe. Don't let there be a gap between what you believe and how you are living your life. Demonstrate in your life humility. Demonstrate in your life authenticity. Don't be a pretend person. Demonstrate in your life accountability. And then, thirdly, if you do know Jesus as your rescuer, I would say by way of life response, when you stumble, and it will happen for all of us, be quick to repent and confess, as it says in 1 John 1-9. Let's honor him with our life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the word of God that's alive and powerful and is able to change our thinking and our behavior and our belief systems. We thank you for Peter who cared enough to warn us about false teachers. We pray, Father, for any who's listening to my voice that do not know Jesus as a rescuer, that they would trust in him right where they sit, right now. And then, Father, for those of us who do know Jesus, we would pray that we would actively be Bereans, that we would live out what we believe, demonstrating humility and authenticity and accountability. And when we do stumble, that we would please you by being quick to repent and to confess so we may receive fresh forgiveness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.